Well, let me add my word of welcome. We are delighted that you're here. I'm so grateful to have you. You know, we don't do a lot of services at night. People are afraid of the dark around here. It's hard to get people, it's hard to get people to come out. And boy, we had a just a packed house this weekend. But we had you came out. You came out last night. You came out tonight. And I'm so glad that you did because I, have y'all enjoyed this as much as I have? When I started thinking about who can we get to come during Lent and, and uh, lead us in renewal services, I said, let's get John, Ed, and George to come. They do this all the time. They'll be wonderful. We'd love to have them. We've known each other for over 45 years. And, you know, their daddy and some more folks started a church camp, Camp Glory, Perdido Bay, 50 years ago when they loaded us on the bus and took us down there from Tennessee. And we never looked back. I mean, it just opened the door for so many great things to happen. And, and uh, now, you know, we have this relationship together, and it's been such a blessing, but it ain't over. Yeah. John Ed was here, and he preached, and George has preached, and this is the last night, but what a blessing. And I, I appreciate the music tonight. Didn't you enjoy the choir? I'm so glad to hear them. I've been working with them on that song, and it worked out just perfectly. Just the way we practiced it, and, uh, you know, Bill said, Joe, how can you help me? I said, I, I got you. I got you, brother. I got you. And then we had the Darling family tonight. I was so glad. It was just like watching Andy Griffith 100 years ago with, with the mandolin and everything. The boys got all riled up tonight. Did you notice that? Thank you all for coming. They play out at the beach service a lot of times for us. But isn't it wonderful that uh, we're all part of the same church? We've got different services. I wonder if you've met people from other services during this because, you know, the beach service and then the 9 o'clock and then the 1015, you don't always know everybody. But then you get to know people. People came in, and, and we had people from all the different services come together. What a blessing it's been. One of the things I appreciate so much about George, among the many things, and I've talked to you about him a lot, is that um, George would make a list of the preachers in our conference, and he would have so many every day that he would pray for. George is, I'm almost positive, is related to John Wesley, because John Wesley was an early riser, and George would get up in the morning, and he'll pray, and then he, he would have a list, and he would pray for certain preachers and then he would call those preachers. It'd be 5 o'clock in the morning. You'd get George on the phone. He'd say, Brother Joe, I prayed for you today. And I said, who is this? No, I said, <laughs> I knew who it was. And I said, thank you, George. I need all the prayer I can get. And, uh, but he, if he told you he prayed for you, he did. And he would go down that list. And every now and then, you know, you'd come up on the rotation. And it was your time to shine. And he would call, and boy, I tell you, I appreciate that. I sure do. And I've shared with him, I don't want to bail off into a lot. I don't want to say a whole lot about this to particular topic. But I do just want to say this. In Auburn, Alabama, there's some folks that love each other and love the Lord. And um, some of the authorities and the powers that be decided that they didn't want them around anymore and uh, so there was a ton of them that got up and used their feet to vote because they wouldn't let them vote. And they started a new church up there. And it's booming. It's, it's really a great church. I mean, it was a great church anyway. And, but all those folks left because they didn't have a choice. And I came and told you about it when I heard about it. I called George on the phone. I told him I was so sorry. Everybody was so ugly. It shouldn't have happened. Nobody should have done that. But then I ask you to pray for him, and I just want to ask you to pray for George and Montaigne and, and all their delegation. That's a big group of folks that are really wonderful people. I served in Opelika, and George was there in Auburn. We would run into each other all the time at the hospital in different places, and we'd get George to come over and preach for us there in Opelika. And uh, I know a lot of those people. I, I, some of them... Some of those folks were in my youth group a long, long time ago. Now they've all grown up, and I feel so old now, George. How those? How did that happen? How, we were so young once, weren't we? But George has been a blessing. We've had a wonderful time together. Uh, we got to visit and fellowship together, and that's been a blessing. We got to worship together. 
And so we just are celebrating this last service tonight, and we pray that uh, you just sit back and relax and enjoy this time and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. And when we get through, George is going to give you a chance to come up here and pray. And uh, we do allow that here in the church. I don't know if you're aware of that, but there's things up here that allow that to occur. And, and we would really love it for you to come and do that. You know, I was saved in the Baptist church. I, I was, went to vacation Bible school. My grandmother took me to vacation Bible school. And they know how to give an invitation in vacation Bible school in the Baptist church. And I got saved. I was 10 years old. Cleveland, Tennessee, sure was. And so it'd be all right for you to, to respond tonight if, if the Holy Spirit's speaking to you. And just come up here and take your time. We, we don't have another service to go to after this. This is it. So we got, we got a lot of time, okay? Let's give George a warm Woodlawn welcome. God bless you, Brother Joe, and thank you so much. I shared with some of you that I feel like I've got two brothers, John Ed, who was with us yesterday and this morning, or, or yesterday and last night, and also Joe. I've loved him like a brother over the years, and he has been such a blessing to my life. And it's one of the real joys of being here this weekend has been the opportunity to renew some friendships and be with people whom I love and appreciate so very much. Montaigne and Joe and I met with the Naftals right before the service. They were members of our church in Auburn, and their daughters were my daughter's very best friends, and we love and appreciate them, and several of you have shared with me that what my father, Brother Si, meant to you when he was pastor of First Methodist in Panama City and then the church on the beach, Gulf View here, and we're members of our church, and I appreciate so much you sharing with me what he meant to you, and to be able to renew these friendships. Two of my best buddies are here with us tonight, Tommy and Linda Bowden. They were members of my church in Auburn, and I learned to love and to appreciate them so much. He was one of the great football coaches, and he has been one of my idols and one of my heroes over the years. His brother T Terry was the head football coach at Auburn. And I remember after Terry was appointed, Tommy came as the offensive coordinator. And I, I was out visiting one night, Brother Joe. A lot of preachers don't visit much anymore. But I, I used to love to visit. And I just visit on until about midnight sometimes. And about 10 o'clock at night, I visited Tommy and Linda Bowden. I, I knocked on their door, and they were eating supper. And they didn't have any idea who I was. I said, I'm the Methodist preacher. They said, we're Baptist. I said, that don't make any difference. You let me come in. And I went in, and I saw the supper on the table. And I kept, I kept hoping they would invite me to eat supper with them, but... Tommy, y'all never gave me a bite to eat that night, and I've never forgotten it. But that night began a friendship that has blossomed over the years, and they have meant so much to me. Tommy asked if I would teach a Bible study to the coaching staff at Auburn, to all of the football coaches. And Tommy, you may remember, we met every Monday morning at 6 o'clock. All of the coaches would come in, and before they would have their business meeting I would do a Bible study and they made me the chaplain and that was one of the epical experiences of my ministry Montaigne would bake biscuits every morning for those coaches and I remember I'd come into that Bible study and I'd have my Bible under one arm and I'd have Montaigne's biscuits in the other hand and brother Tommy never looked at the Bible he looked at those biscuits wondering when I was going to put them down in front of them and we had some wonderful, wonderful times together. I'll tell you something interesting about that season. That season, and, and I felt like spiritually I was able to make an impact upon all of those. Jimbo Fisher was a member of that coaching staff, Rick Trickett, Rodney Allison. And, and our, that year, Auburn went undefeated, Brother John. You remember that. We, we didn't lose a game. I may upset some people when I say this, but we beat the University of Florida that year. 
we beat the University of Alabama, that we didn't lose a game. We went undefeated. And then the next season, which was Tommy's, I guess his second year there, we went undefeated up until we played Georgia and tied Georgia and then lost out to Alabama. And we won 20 straight games. Now, you may not think that was such an accomplishment, but if you look at football in the Southeastern Conference, that was accomplishing a lot. And I learned to love and to appreciate all of those guys so very much. They, all of them were members of our church. Like I said, Tommy and Linda were very devout Baptists, and I, 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 they, they joined our church. Terry, their brother, joined, uh, Tommy's brother, joined our church and became very active. I remember Tommy and Linda and their son, little Ryan, would sit on about the third row every Sunday. And I want to say this, I've known a lot of football coaches. There's never been a coach whom I have admired and looked up to any more than Tommy Bowden. He is the very epitome of Christian character. And I saw firsthand, not only as his pastor, but as the chaplain, I saw what true Christianity was and what an example he was and what he is to my life today. Those two years, Auburn lost only one game in two years. And then Tommy, he was the offensive coordinator. He went to, to Tulane where he became the head coach. And that next year, they went undefeated. Now, Tulane is a very academic institution. And I remember I wrote Tommy and I said, Brother Tommy, send me a Tulane sweatshirt so I can play tennis in it. And I remember Tommy sent me a sweatshirt and it was size medium. And I said, Brother Tommy, send me a large. He said, George, I ain't got any players here at Tulane who wear a large. They all wear <laughs> medium is the largest they wear. But Tommy meant, meant so much to me. And when he moved to New Orleans, Tommy and Linda fell from grace and went back to the Baptist church. <laughs> and Tommy gave me a hard time because in our church at Auburn, Brother Joe, we we had a dynamic church during those years. We'd have eight worship services every Sunday morning. And I remember our membership grew to 5,000. And, and we were many, we were, many of the members who were joining were Baptist. And I would send Tommy our newsletter, and it listed all of those Baptists who were joining with their pictures. And Tommy sent that newsletter back to me. I've still got it, Tommy, and Tommy had joined the Baptist church then, and he wrote these words across the top of it, let my people go, <laughs> and I, I've still got that newsletter today, but Tommy meant so much to me, and still does, and he is such an example for my life, and if you here on Panama City Beach want to see a person who is, who truly represents the love of Christ and it's not easy I was right in the middle of, of college football it's not easy to to be a spirit-filled dedicated Christian in the coaching profession but Tommy Bowden certainly fills that role and he Montaigne knows how much he and his brother Terry Terry I could talk about him but anyway I Tommy and Linda and Linda's sweet mother who is with us we want you to know how much we appreciate your coming, your coming here tonight. One of the things about our church at Auburn that I enjoyed so much, we had eight worship services. We had two contemporary services. We had a mild contemporary service, and then we had a wild contemporary service. We had, and, and my philosophy was that the wider the net, the more fish you're going to catch. And we had something for everybody, no matter what your religious taste was. And that was, was such, a, such a wonderful experience serving that church. But our 11 o'clock service mainly was a student service. John, you and Rita remember, at 11 o'clock, we would have our sanctuary seated about 1,500 people. And we would have about 1,200 hundred university students in that 11 o'clock service it was almost like a college service and I loved that service I looked forward to it brother Joe college students are fun to preach to 
For one thing, they laughed at my jokes when other people wouldn't. But I, I, I learned to love those university students so much, and they, we had many of them go, in, go into the ministry that Joe is aware of. And, but college students are fun to be around. I heard about a young fellow who was a college student, and he was talking to his girlfriend, and he said to her, he, he said, I want you to know how much I love you. I want you to know how much I genuinely care about you. And then he said to her, I know I don't, I know I don't have a Porsche automobile like Jerome. And I don't have a Corvette automobile like Jerome. Jerome's got him two cars. But I love you. And he said, I, I know that I don't have a big yacht off Panama City Beach where I could go down every other weekend like Jerome's able to do. Jerome owns a yacht. And every other weekend, fly out to Vail and go skiing like Jerome. Jerome owns him a villa out there. But I love you. And, and, and she looked at him and she said, and I love you too, but tell me some more about this Jerome. <laughs> well, well, what I want to do for just a few moments this evening, I want to tell you some more about a subject that you have heard many, many times before tonight. But it's my prayer that through the power of the Holy Spirit, I can present it in a fresh and scriptural and new way that you have never heard it before. And through this, and through this process, Christ will become more real to you tonight than you have ever experienced Him in your life. I, you know, I don't want this service, Brother Joe, just to be another run-of-the-mill service. I want something special to happen in this service. And the wonderful music that you shared with us, you have set the tone for it, our choir. And I believe that God is going to move in a special way. But before I preach this sermon tonight that God has laid upon my heart, will you bow your heads as we pray together? Now, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want you to pray that right now the anointing of the blessed Holy Spirit will completely cover me. I want you to pray for the people sitting to your right and to your left that the Holy Spirit will begin to move in a way that He has never moved in this place of worship. Precious Lord, as we come into your presence right now, we can feel your power. We can feel your love. We can feel your grace. And during this season of Lent, as the choir so beautifully reminded us that on Calvary's cross, written in red, is your love letter to us and how much you care for us. Father, we know that at best we are unprofitable and limited servants. And right now, I feel my inadequacy as I come before you. We remember the people of old said, Sirs, we would see Jesus. Father, I simply make that my prayer right now. Hide me behind the cross so we will see and hear and Feel nothing save Jesus Christ, our wonderful Savior and Sanctifier and Lord, risen again and coming in glory. For we make our prayer in your dear name. Amen. I really prayed about the sermon that I wanted God, that, that I wanted God to have me preach tonight, and I've spent time this afternoon on my knees in my hotel room seeking the face of God and asking Him to lay upon my heart the message that He would have you hear. And I believe with all of my heart tonight that the sermon that I'm going to share with you is a sermon that God wants you to hear tonight in this particular place at this particular time. And I want to entitle this very simple message, what is God like? Now let's think about that question for just a few moments. What is God like? 
If I were to ask you to respond to that question by taking a piece of paper and writing on that paper, my understanding of God, what would you write? We have sung about Him. We have prayed to Him. We're going to preach about Him. But what is God like to you? And our text is a very familiar selection of Scripture taken from John chapter 14, words that you've heard many times. In, in John chapter 14, Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. It's the Greek word mone, mu omicron, nu, ada, mone, or rooms. In my Father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare your place for you. And if I go and prepare your place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. Now when you read this narrative, at this point, two of the disciples interrupt Jesus. Two of the disciples. First of all, Thomas interrupts him and, and says to him, Lord, how can we know the way? And then Jesus responded to this statement of Thomas, this question of Thomas, with what Bible scholars call one of the seven great I am affirmations that are found in the book of John. Seven times Jesus said, I am. And these two words, I am, introduced us to an important part of the Lord Jesus' nature. Seven times, and they're found in the book of John, Jesus said, I am. Jesus said, I am, I am, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. And then Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. And then in response to this question of Philip, as, excuse me, to Thomas, Jesus said, he said, Lord, show us the way. Jesus said, I am the way. The Greek word we translate way is an interesting word. It is the word hodos, omicron, delta, omicron, sigma. It means a little narrow way. I am the narrow way. I am the truth. It's the Greek word aletheia. Alpha, lambda, alpha, theta, iota, alpha. It means ultimate reality. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. And then a second disciple interrupted Jesus. And said to him, and actually in the scriptures, it's, in the form, it's actually in the form of a question. He said, Lord, this was Philip. Now, Philip was the systematic theologian of the group. I believe theologically, Philip was deeper than any of the other disciples. This is the profoundest theological question that you will find in the Bible. Philip looked at Jesus and, and, and said to him, literally paraphrasing, what is God like? Show us the Father and it will satisfy us. In John chapter 14, I believe it's verse 8. And, and Jesus looked at him and said, Brother Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But I want us to think about that question for just a few moments tonight. Philip asked Jesus, what is God like? To you tonight, what is God like? What is your understanding of God? Every theological and doctrinal view you have stems from your understanding of God. In our Apostles' Creed, we, we begin by saying, I believe in God. That is the door that opens us up to theological knowledge. If you go to seminary, and I've enjoyed so much meeting some of these seminary students, one of the first courses you'll take is a course in systematic theology. And the first thing you do is develop a theology of your understanding of God. What is God like? And I want us to answer that question. Because your answer to that question tonight will determine the joy and fulfillment you have in this life. And it will determine your eternal destiny. I want to share with you very briefly, very succinctly, and very compactly three things that I believe about God. 
And again, before I begin, in your mind, to just ruminate upon that question, what do I really believe about God? And I want to say that the three things that I'm going to share with you tonight, I believe with all of my heart. I've dedicated my life to the ministry, like you, Brother Joe, of telling people about my God and these three things I believe about Him. Let me give them to you, and then we're going to go back, and we're going to talk about them. Now, keep in mind, Philip said to Jesus, what is God like? I want to tell you what I believe God is like. Three things I believe about God. Number one, God is a God of love. And then number two, I'm going to talk about God is a God of strength. And then number three, God is the God of eternity. Now let's study these three characteristics of God tonight. And I want you to understand them against the background of this question of Philip. What is God like? Number one, God is a God of love. The most important thing you can know about God tonight is that He loves you. It's a love that our human minds cannot comprehend. It is a love that completely transcends human knowledge. It is a love that excels any thought of affection that we might harbor within our hearts. Charles Wesley tried to capture this thought when he wrote, Love divine, all loves excelling, joy of heaven to earth come down. In the little book, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, the very heart of the Bible is encapsulated within three words that are embedded in that verse. It's three simple words. God is love. That's where an understanding of God begins. What our choir sang about a moment ago, they were trying to explain to us how much God loves, how much God loves us. God is love. And then when you read through the New Testament and you go from 1 John to the 4th Gospel, you find that the beloved apostle is weaving the, 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 is weaving the thread of God's love through the fabric of Holy Scripture. As in John 3.16, John tells us how much God loves us. John 3.16, the most beloved verse in the Bible, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That Greek word world is the word cosmos. And if you want to know how much God loves you, you insert your, you insert your name into that word cosmos. For God so loved Joe. For God so loved Laura. For God so loved John. For God so loved George that he gave his only begotten son. I wonder if you've ever sat down and stopped to think of how much God loves you. Back in 1936, the Duke of Windsor gave up the throne of England to marry the woman he loved. Newspapers all across the Commonwealth carried this headline, greatest love story in the history of the world. I disagree with that. Do you want me to tell you the greatest love story this world has ever known? It occurred when God looked down upon the world He had created. And He saw that it was broken and it was out of joint. And as God looked down upon His creation, He said, I want to communicate with these people in my world and I am going to become one of them I'm going to robe myself in the garment of flesh John said the word became flesh and dwelt among us and I'm going to become one of them and Jesus was born of a virgin and Jesus lived a sinless life he went through the mockery of a trial he was crucified on the old rugged cross and on the third day, he rose again. That is how much he loves you. I had tears come to my eyes while the choir was singing written in red a few moments ago. That is how much God loves 
knew. Montaigne and I were in London and we went to St. Paul's Cathedral. And if you ever go to St. Paul's Cathedral, when you walk in, there's a life-size statue of Jesus. And he is writhing in pain. And you just stand there and you look at that statue and you see the nail prints in his hands. You see his riven side. You see the, the spike print in his feet. You see his precious brow now wounded. And at the base of that statue are these words, five words. This is how he loved. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. That's how much God loves you. God is a God of love. One of my favorite vocalists was George Beverly Shea. He was Billy Graham's soloist. And George Beverly Shea, trying to understand God's love, penned these lines. Listen to this. There's the wonder of sunrise at morning. The wondrous sunset I see. But the wonder of wonders that thrills my soul is the wonder that God loves me. The wonder of it all. The wonder of it all, just to think that God loves me. I don't know about you, but sometimes I wonder how God could really love me. But the good news of the gospel, not only does he love me, but he loves you. I read about two little boys who were talking, and one boy had just been converted. And he was trying to explain to the other little boy how much God loved him. And this little fellow said to his friend, God loves you so much. God loves you so much. If God had a wallet, your picture would be in it. That's how much he loves you. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. That's how much God loves you. Just think, every morning God gives to you a beautiful sunrise. Every evening, he gives to you a lovely sunset. Just think, God could live anywhere in this vast creation he has made. And yet, he has chosen your heart. Face it, friend. God is crazy about you. What is God like? Number one, God is a God of love. Number two, God is a God of strength. God is a God of strength. Paul knew this strength. Paul said, I can do all things. It's the Greek word panta, pi alpha, nu, tau alpha. It's inclusive of every experience in life. Any goal, any obstacle before you. I can do panta, all things, through Christ who gives me strength. Now, that's something we need to be reminded of, that God is a God of strength. He wants to help us get through the rough times in life. I read about a little boy who was in the backyard, and he was trying to move a huge stone. And the little fellow was laboriously attempting to move the stone, and it was all to no avail. And he invited his little friend next door to come over and to help him. And the two of them tried to move the stone and they could not move it. And then the little boy got his dog Fido and tied a rope around Fido's tummy. Tied the other rope to the rock. And then the two boys and Fido tried to move the rock, but they couldn't move it. The entire time, his father was standing on the back porch watching them. And the father cried out to his son, and said, son, what are you doing? And he said, father, we're trying to move this big stone. And he said, you're not having much luck, are you? And they said, no, father, we're not. And we've tried every way we know. I've tried every way. I've tried to move it. My friends tried to help me. Fido's tried to help me. And we can't move it. We've tried every way we know. And that loving father looked at his boy. And he said, son, You've not tried every way. You've not asked me to come and to help you. 
And with those words, the father walked down the steps and walked over and with his big bulging muscles reached out and picked that stone up and moved it. I wonder how many people came into this worship service tonight. And there was some huge stone upon your pathway blocking blocking your path to the goals God has for you. And that stone is still there right now. And your heavenly father is looking at you and he's saying, I want to strengthen you and help you. I want to wipe away those tears. I want to mend that broken heart. I want to lift your heavy burden. I want to bear your load. The Bible says, cast all of your care upon God because he surely cares for us. The Bible says God is a very present help in time of need, especially in our time of trouble. So often we try to carry those burdens and those loads all by ourselves. And God says, I don't want you to do that. I want to help you. But in order for me to help you, you've got to ask me. Maybe there's somebody here right now. And you're fighting some battle that nobody knows anything about. Maybe you're bearing some burden. Won't you surrender it to your Lord tonight? Won't you lean upon him? Some time ago, I preached in a camp meeting, Brother Joe, at Hartzell Camp Meeting way up in North Alabama. The theme song of that camp meeting, Donna, is leaning on the everlasting arms. I preached there several times, and... You're not there long until they tell you about an experience that happened in that camp meeting. Back many, many years ago, there was an evangelist by the name of Reverend Showalter. And Reverend Showalter, it was a two-week camp meeting back then. And during that camp meeting, he was from the state of Kentucky. And during that camp meeting, he received word that his wife and children had perished in a fire. Now, he was preaching there at Hartzell, the camp meeting where many years later I was preaching. And they'll tell you there of how Brother Showalter sat on the front pew of that old tabernacle after having received the news that his wife and daughters had perished in that fire. And over a tear-stained piece of paper in that Wesleyan Methodist Holiness Camp meeting, Brother Showalter wrote these words, What a fellowship, what a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting arms. What have I to dread, what have I to fear? I have blessed peace with my Lord so near, leaning on the everlasting arms. Oh, I want you to know that your Lord is a Lord of strength. And He can bear any burden that you're carrying. And He wants to carry it for you. One of my heroes was a fellow named Jim Stockdale. Maybe you've heard of him. Admiral Jim Stockdale. He was a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. He rose to the rank of admiral in the U.S. Navy. And he was a recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor. It was back in October of 1967 that his Phantom Jet was shot down over North Vietnam. He ejected and landed in a rice paddy. And the impact was so severe that it broke his leg. Immediately upon Hitting the ground, the villagers all converged upon him, and they began to savagely beat him. And they dragged him to the infamous Hanoi Hilton, and they put him in a little room. It was dark, and they left him there. Jim Stockdale was, a, was an American prisoner of war for seven long years. And while Stockdale was there, there were many other American pilots, most of them graduates of the Naval Academy and the Air Force Academy, who had been shot down. He taught them an elaborate code system whereby they could communicate with one another. The Viet Cong found out about it, and they decided to take revenge on Stockdale. And they, his broken leg had not healed properly. And they dragged him out of that, out of that cell block, 
and they took him into a courtyard that was in full view of all of the other cells. And they ordered all of the other POWs to look out their windows and to watch them as they tortured Jim Stockdale. And Stockdale stood there, and the first thing they did was to rip the rags he had draped about his body off so that he didn't have any clothes on. And then two Viet Cong soldiers came with bamboo rods made of the hardest substance known to man. And all of the American prisoners of war were ordered to watch through their windows. And they started to beat Jim Stockdale. And they knew right where to hit him to make it hurt the most. And as they were beating him, Jim Stockdale said, I felt so weak. I did not think I could go on. I felt the tears starting to come. And then Stockdale said, as I stood in that courtyard, as those bamboo rods were beating me, I heard a sound in the distance, and it was a towel snapping. And Stockdale said, I immediately recognized what it was. It was one of my brother pilots, who was a prisoner of war, sending me a message in Morse code. There were long snaps, and there were short snaps. And he was sending me a message of five words while they were beating me. And he said, as I felt those rods come on my neck and my back and other parts of my body. He said, I, I deciphered those five letters. And those five letters that my friend, my brother in Christ was sending to me were G, B, Y, J, S. G, B, Y, J, S. He said, I knew exactly what he was saying. He was saying, God bless you, Jim Stockdale. God bless you, Jim Stockdale. And Jim said, when I received that message, those tears came, but they were not tears of pain and hurt. They were tears. They were tears of strength and grace. Well, let me tell you, the God that we worship is a God of strength who was with Stockdale. And he wants to be with you tonight, helping you face whatever obstacle is in your path. What is God like? God's a God of love. God loves you. You need to be reminded of that. I need to be reminded of that. God is a God of strength. Whatever load you're carrying, He wants to lift it off you and carry it Himself. But there are some of you who are going to leave tonight and take that load right along with you. Friend, you put that load up under the back of Jesus. And very quickly, a third thing about God that I believe. Oh, I believe He's a God of love. I believe He's a God of strength. But number three, he is the God of eternity. You see, God did not make you for this finite existence that we call earth. God made you for something bigger and something better. God made you, when you put your faith and your trust in Him, to ultimately dwell with Him forever in heaven which he has prepared for you. I love to think about heaven. And it, it gets sweeter and dearer to me as every day passes. It's interesting that much of what we know about heaven is found in the book of Revelation. And I'm not all that impressed with the streets of gold, the walls of jasper, the gates of pearl. And it's interesting that what Revelation tells us, and the Greek word for Revelation is the word apocalypsos. It means the pulling back of a curtain and looking into the future, and that's what Jesus lets us do. And it's interesting that when John the Revelator talks about heaven, he tells us what is not going to be there. Have you ever noticed that? He says in heaven, in eternity, 
there'll be no more pain. We live in a world today where people hurt. Hardly a day goes by that I'm not with somebody who's hurting in some way. And this staff and these wonderful ministers will tell you that nearly every day they deal with people who are hurting. But the Bible says that in heaven there'll be no more pain. We hurt. There's physical pain. There's emotional pain. There's marital pain. So many people hurt. But in heaven there'll be no more pain. There'll, there'll be no more darkness. There'll be no more death. There are not going to be any hearses driving over those golden streets. There are not going to be any tombstones on those hillsides of glory. Because there'll be no more death. But you know the most beautiful thing about heaven for me. It's found in Revelation chapter 22 verse 4. John says, and we shall see Jesus. Now I don't know if that means anything to you. But I've spent my whole life, my whole ministry, trying to point people to Jesus. And I, I wonder what it's going to be like someday when I, when I bow down at his feet. And I just lift my hands. And I sing, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive power and honor and glory and riches. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they were created. I, I'm looking so forward to looking upon the face of Jesus. I close with this. One of the, one of the great writers in Christian hymnody was a lady named Fanny Crosby. I don't know if you've ever heard of her name. Let me tell you two or three things about her. Fanny Crosby was a member of the Methodist Episcopal Church up north. She was a deeply committed Christian in the holiness Wesleyan tradition. Fanny Crosby was also a very prolific hymn writer. She wrote many of the hymns that you know and love, but I'll bet you did not know that she, that she wrote them. And Fanny Crosby was also sight impaired. She was completely blind. When she was just a little girl, a doctor misdiagnosed the ailment of her eyes, and she was stricken with blindness. But she wrote many of the hymns. She wrote the hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. You remember the Billy Graham crusades when Cliff Barras would lead them in singing, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Fanny Crosby wrote that song. My dad, Brother Si, his service was held in the First Methodist Church in Panama City. In Montaigne, I remember the song that he requested was a hymn by Fanny J. Crosby. And I remember they nearly lifted the roof off that church. To God be the glory, great things he hath done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son. Fanny Crosby wrote, he hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. Fanny Crosby wrote, redeemed how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And I could go on and on and mention many others. But when Fanny Crosby was facing the waters of Chile, Jordan, somebody asked her this question, Fanny, you're getting ready to go home now, but before you die, I want to ask you a question. Are you bitter towards God? I know you've prayed for him to bring sight to your blind eyes, and he never did. You've prayed for healing, and you never found it physically. Are you bitter towards that doctor who misdiagnosed your case? And Fanny Crosby said to the person who was propounding these questions, like sight-impaired people tend to do, she tilted her head to one side, and with a sweet smile that almost went from ear to ear, she said, no, I am not bitter. I am not bitter at all. She said, just think, in a short while, after I've crossed the waters of Jordan and I enter into that land that's sweeter than day that my Savior has prepared for me, 
He said, just think. When he reaches down then, and he opens these eyes that have been shut for so long, the very first face I shall look upon will be the face of my blessed Savior. Face to face shall I behold him. Face to face how shall it be. Face to face in all his glory. Face to face my Lord and me. We shall see Jesus. What is God like? You've got to answer that question for me. He loves me again. I don't know, Brother Joe, sometimes how he could love me. And I really mean that. But he loves me. And he loves you. He's a God of love. He's a God of strength. I don't know about you, but so often I try to carry all the burdens and cares of this world through life on my shoulders. And he says, George, cast your every care upon me. I'm stronger than you are. I, that's why I'm here. I'm the God of strength. And then he pulls the veil back and he says, I'm the God of eternity. Would you bow your heads as we pray? I'm going to ask our prayer warriors if they would come forward and take their places, please. And in closing, Brother Bill, we're, you're going to lead us as we sing up an appropriate number. And our altar is open. If you'd like to just slip out of your seat. And I think we'll just remain seated. Is that the best way to do this? And if you'd like to come, if you'd like to just pray right where you're sitting, feel free to do that. Or if you'd like to come to the altar and pray. And as you come to pray, whether sitting where you are or coming to the altar, the only way you can answer the question, what is God like, is from the perspective of a born-again experience with Jesus Christ. And if you've never experienced his saving grace, that's why these people are here. They're to pray with you and they're to help point you to Jesus. But I want you to think about that question as we sing. The question that Philip asked Jesus, what is God like? And I want you to think about his love for you. I want you to think about his strength available for you and his glorious eternity that's awaiting you.